That's one of the things that we do best at Vector in terms of Vector trained is help raise people's awareness. And when they're aware of what's going on and their emotions and the emotional state of others, they can make new choices now. A lot of the things that I started teaching, I asked myself, what were lessons that I've learned over the years that I wish I'd learned at 21? One of the things we talk about a lot on these leadership days is acting your way into feeling. The importance of not only becoming aware of what you're feeling, but also the fact that sometimes what I'm feeling isn't true. If we're going to achieve anything in life, long-term legacy achievers, it can't just be following what feels good right now. We've got to act our way into feeling. I'm just describing discipline, which I believe we've celebrated and learned for years here at Vector. That's Trent Booth, one of the most important leaders in the Cutco Vector Marketing Organization today. As training and leadership development manager, Trent brings a culture of personal growth and exceptional leadership to Vector's management team. In this conversation, we discuss Trent's path with Cutco starting in Canada and leading to his current corporate role. And then we dive into some of the most important leadership philosophies and strategies that Trent shares with others today. By listening to this episode, you'll gain actionable ideas that will help develop the leader within you. This is my longtime colleague and friend, Trent Booth. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm really excited today to be able to have Trent Booth as a guest. If you follow the podcast closely, you have heard Trent as a guest host on several episodes. He has been an amazing supporter and teammate here with the podcast ever since its inception. Trent is a veteran of the Cutco Vector business dating back to 1993. He started in Calgary, Alberta, Canada with the company with Joe Cardillo as his initial manager. In 1995, Trent moved all the way across Canada to Montreal to become a district manager, where he had a successful run there, ultimately leading into his role as a division coordinator in that area in 2002. Trent was able to move into a national role with our company in 2004, initially responsible for the development of our recruiting programs. And he's going to talk a little bit about how that evolved. He's worked with John Kane ever since that time. That role has morphed into what is now known as our training and leadership development manager. Trent impacts vector managers from all across the country in various ways. Talk a little bit about that today. Also, 
I'm really excited to have you as a guest on the podcast today, Trent. So welcome. Thanks for having me, Dan. Really excited to be here. Yes. It's great that your turn has come up here on the podcast. So well, take us back to 1993 and tell us a little bit about how you got started with the company. Man, 1993. So I was uh, I just dropped out of theater school. So I was going to go to University of Calgary for business and uh, last minute pivot and went into theater school and decided real quickly that I liked being an actor. I didn't love it. And you better get out of that if you don't love it. So I dropped out and uh, for three months, was bartending here and there. And they saw an ad in the paper for $12. And I'm like, dude, if that's, as long as it's not killing people, I'm, that's me. I'm, I'm in. I'm in there. And uh, I got hired on my birthday in 1993. It was March 11th. And I uh, started working with Joe Cardella. We ran my training seminar. I'm like, this guy's amazing. Well, in fact, I'll tell you this. Eight days after I started, I was still in a theater production, kind of like a cafe thing. And Cardillo came. Like he, he was new, and him and Jan were just new to the city, and they came and supported me. He didn't know me from Adam, and he's like, Yeah, man, I'll come out to your show. And again, it's just an early example of just what kind of character Joe Cardillo is. That, that is still a relationship that I cherish here 27 years later. Sounds like something that Joe would do knowing him. And his podcast episode that you hosted, still one of my favorites, just a fun, episode to listen to and hear somebody's somebody's great story. So it's cool that you had the chance to start with someone as amazing as Joe in those early days. Tell us about some of your early experiences and lessons that uh, stand out. I did all right. Initially, I was pretty excited about the position and I'm one of the rare folks in that uh, my family was really supportive. My mom's like, whatever you, you want to do, you'll, you'll be great at it. My, my dad was in sales. He got his start at Procter & Gamble, so he, he saw the presentation. He loved it. He bought a homemaker, but I didn't have a huge fast start. I sold like 1100 bucks and kind of struggled quite a bit that first that first summer. I did go to a, a conference, though. We got to fly from that time Calgary to Toronto to have our national sales conference. And that's a, it's a flight, man. I mean, it, it's a you can't drive it. <laughs> it's like a five-day drive. And uh, <laughs> I remember writing, I saw like a court of honor induction. And I wrote three things on the back of this program, and I found it all these years later. I said, number one, I want to win a scholarship in the company. Number two, I want to be Joe Cardillo's right-hand man. I want to be his assistant. And then the third thing is, like, I want to want to run a branch. And it's funny because I don't know how that works entirely, but like I wrote those three things down on the back of a, a program, NSC 93 in Toronto in, in June. And uh, eventually, within five years, all those things had happened. That's amazing. Really cool that you were able to uh, capitalize on all those opportunities. I did a presentation right before Conference of Champions for a lady that bought an on-life set. And uh, she says, hey, have you seen the Cutting Edge Sales Seminar advertised? I'm like, I have. It looks expensive. She goes, it is. And I said, uh, she goes, have you heard of Jim Rohn? I said, I've, I've never heard of him, but it looks, like, it looks amazing. And she brought a check for the all-life set and then gave me a ticket. I call it the golden ticket. I said, mm. some value on it. I'm like, I can't accept this. This is too generous. She goes, no, no, you can. And you just need to pay it forward. And so I went to, I skipped my first day of college. I was going to Bible college now at this point, And I missed my first day of school to go to see Jim Rohn. And what a difference. I, on a dime. After that conference, we had a conference of champions as well. And I went on a tear. I, I got out to a lead in the scholarship race. It was an eight-month contest back then. I wound up finishing number two. And the guy that I was actually competing with uh, lived in Montreal. So we kind of struck up a friendship there that uh, remains to this day as well. But everything changed for me at that, at that one point, though. So kind of slow start, but uh, uh, turned it on in that September of that same year. And then I got to become Joe Cardillo's right-hand man. Because of that scholarship performance, 
I got to uh, be his, I just knew if I could just hang out with Joe for a season, even I'm like, this is a good guy. He's wealthy. He's influential. He's good. I'm like, if I can just get at his feet for a year or so, I think I could be a better guy, better man. And uh, what an amazing first year that you're working with Joe and be able to study under the master. And, and uh, Angie started that year in 1994 as well. Angie McDougal now runs Canada. And uh, to be able to be a, an early mentor for her back in the day and Vonnie Fast, who still is around, leading both of them and serving them as, as their assistant manager that year. It's just an incredible run. We won the Silver Cup for the office. We won uh, the Division Silver Cup. So, yeah, working with Joe is just amazing but slow start i'll put it that way yeah but then getting to go to that jim Rohn seminar was a key catalyst in turning things around for you that is really cool to hear and being around a guy like joe for that year it just gets me thinking for anyone in the audience right they could ponder who is it in my life that if i could spend more time around would have a powerful impact on my future and being able to find the ways to get into that person's inner circle, as you did with Joe, for that season of your life. It was even just the the informal times with Joe. So, of course, he'd have great staff meetings, etc. But like after the day was done, we'd be in the parking lot. And Calgary, it's cold in the winter, man. I mean, stomping our feet, but we just didn't want to stop talking and connecting. And that one-on-one attention that I got from Joe that one year, no question, formed much of who I am as a leader today. Amazing to hear. Really, really cool. So you advanced, you became a branch manager, Trent, and then uh, you had a chance to become a district manager. So yeah, and- back in that day, uh, technically I was a pilot manager and you just now go right to, to district manager and I've asked for uh, retro pay, they're not doing it. But so back <laughs> in the day, uh, I went from Joe Cardell's pilot and I'd saved about four grand, which is remarkable. The fact that I was 20 years old and I'd saved about $4,000 just in, in uh, AM pay. And an opportunity came up because they were going to launch me into Saskatchewan. I was going to open up either Regina or Saskatoon or maybe up in Edmonton. And uh, Montreal came open. Mm. Montreal. And I was pretty good as a student. I mean, there's a lot of things. I was, I was pretty good at picking up French. I actually won the award for, for learning French in, in high school. And I was going to even minor in it in college. And uh, when Montreal opened up, see, I also knew I didn't just want to be a branch. I knew I wanted to be a division manager. I, I knew at this point, I'm like, well, I only liked acting and I'm done with that. And uh, I want to be a division manager like Joe. And there's no division manager out there. If I go out there, I mean, I had to wait for, we, we had the number one division. So like four guys in the 20s had to die for me to get a shot at division manager where I was. So <laughs> if I move across the country to Montreal, it's just a cool city. Always loved it. Had a choice between Montreal or Toronto. And I'm like, I'm just much more of a Montreal type of guy. Let's go. And I couldn't believe it. They said, all right, in three months, you've got to save another six grand while you're going to school full time. You got to save a total of 10 and you got to get bilingual, which I was pretty good at the time. I was at least proficient, but I had to take a French class for sure. And it came down to 20 calls a day. If I made 20 phone calls a day, I was going to get the demos I needed to get the sales I needed to get the money to go to Montreal. And I just went all out. And uh, I'll tell you, I got to 8,500 saved and borrowed 1,500 bucks from my dad that I repaid later. And I hit the 10 grand and they let me as a 21-year-old kid move to Montreal. It's a city of 3 million people. Right. It is an incredible cosmopolitan center. And as I flew over, I'm like, I can't even believe the company let me do this. And But a turning point. I've been in Eastern Canada and United States ever since. Never moved back out West. Wow. And uh, for anybody in the U.S. that uh, isn't 
fully clear. Montreal is in Quebec province, where it's, it's like it's, north of New York. French is the language there. So it's primary. Yeah. N- not only did you have to learn, like uh, it's one thing to know conversational French, but to be able to do things like run a training right. in French or to run the interview in French, like the, some of the detailed words that are used in that are not necessarily conversational words that you, you use te- more technical things that you would say well, that had to be a challenge a lot of us canadians learn parisian french right mm-hmm. not we don't learn quebec quebecois and uh, that was hard because there are certain words that i use that they did they don't use there you know mm-hmm. and vice versa so it's almost like a, there's a whole dialect of of french that uh, i was under i was ill prepared for i would say i underestimated that challenge it, my assistants would laugh at me because like the the server would come up and speak french and i would hang in like i knew there's and i didn't know what they were saying at one time <laughs> diego Gramajo is our a district manager up there and he said uh in french he says He's listening to you and smiling, and he's pretending that he knows what you're saying. And there I am, like a fool, nodding and smiling. Not <laughs> I got proficient in the, in the end eventually. got pretty good. But. <laughs> that, that's great that Diego pulled that on you and you yeah, didn't yeah. even know what he was Thanks, saying. Thanks, Diego. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about uh, your run out there in Montreal as a district manager and ultimately as you know, a, Again, a it got off to a, a rocky start. There were certain things that I knew very well and there's other things I didn't know very well. And, and uh, it was complicated further because I was married at the time. I'd been married uh, really young. My first wife decides she doesn't want to be married anymore. Like as I opened my branch. Like literally within four weeks, she's like, I'm out. I'm like, well, counseling? She's like, no, nah, I'm just gone. So I'm like, now I'm trying to like run a business and deal with like this severe personal trauma. And I just didn't get off to a good start at all. And my dad came out to Montreal and visited and just helped me kind of get straight. We set up a budget because I whistled through all that 10 grand. I was advertising way too much, way too early before the summer even really hit. And uh, it came to a point where like third week of May, where that's like gold season and I, it was do or die. And we managed to launch a group of 11 that sold 11 grand. And then we got to 21,000 and then 31,000. We actually finished number five internationally after a very rocky start. But I'm grateful for that first summer. It's funny. I had goals written down like, hey, just launch 100 people and you'll succeed. And at the end of the summer, 99 people. So my goal is 100. I launched 99. I was like hoping for $2,500 productivity. We shipped 252,000 that first summer, which which was a nice start. Yeah, and, uh, definitely. definitely solid uh, kickoff to the career. I'll put it that way. Despite some serious adversity, you know, I just threw myself into the work. and was just grateful that I had good work to do and people to celebrate good work with. Yeah. I remember uh, an old man that I saw speak one time talking about when your emotions are not in a good place. He called it being below the line. Yeah. And he said that the best way to go above the line is through contribution. And so you were at a point, right, with the marriage ending yeah. suddenly where you must have been totally below that line, but you're able to find a an avenue to be able to contribute to others through your work that I'm sure helped to lift your spirits and, and lift you back up, uh, you know, relatively well, I, quickly. I was, just, I was grateful just for, you know, good man in my life bringing me above that line regularly. My dad called me every day of that summer, <laughs> every single day he called just to make sure I was okay. There's a pastor at a church that I just joined there in Montreal, and that guy helped stitch me together one one day at a time. And just to, like you said, to help people, just focus on helping people. Other district managers at the time, like Mark Osterholt and Jim Oliva and Joe Grushkin, these he was the national sales manager at the time. These everybody kind of kind of closed ranks around me and just made sure Trent was okay. And 
as I just threw myself into work that summer, I was grateful to have good work to do. I'll put it that way, because I think this was coming either way. But to be able to throw myself into good work and, and make a difference meant everything. Yeah, great. yeah. And Joe Grushkin was the national sales manager. He was, Canada yeah. At the time. He was the guy I had to sell to be able to get to Montreal <laughs> in the first place. And it's funny because I was like, Joe, I'm quitting school. I want to go to Montreal and I want to become a division manager. And I had to, I had to talk him two hour drive. I had him for, and I, I had to convince him I to, to let me go. And uh, he wasn't, he wasn't for it at all. He's like, Trent, I want you to finish school. I'm like, Joe, I'm leaving school either way. I hope I get to be a, di- a district manager in your company. And he relented and, and let me do it because it's was, it was not common at that point for people to leave school for a district opportunity. But uh, I knew if I ever wanted to go back to school, I could do it. And again, I was studying something that I was interested in more than looking to get the degree. And so for me, I was able to largely get kind of that master's experience here at Vector. And I was always a big fan of informal education and reading the books I kind of wanted to read. So I would say even to this day, I'm well read, but uh, no, no degree. So I'm not not advertising this as a program here within Vector, clearly, because uh, most of my friends have, have degrees here. But I'll tell you this, it bothered me in my, in my 20s not having a degree, and even a little bit in, the, in my 30s. But so much of what a college is supposed to do is prepare you to be able to do what I was getting to do on a daily basis. And even hearing uh, Paige Weber's story a couple of weeks ago on your podcast, man, it was I'm just one of those guys that I wasn't cut out necessarily for school. And I'm really grateful for an opportunity to still learn and grow and, uh, and excel in leadership here at Vector. Yeah. And, and, you know, in Vector, we have a place for people to be who they want to be. And the reality is that there are many people who are in school, who value school and like school and want to pursue being in college and graduating. And, you know, that was the path I took. Even after running a top flight silver cup branch, I went back to school and I finished up my degree and it's just what I wanted to do. But there are also many other people that don't want to take that path and that, you know, Vector enables you to be who you want to be. And I think that's an important, you know, distinction to make is that we support those people that want to take the path through college. We also support those people who feel like, hey, look, school's not my thing. And, you know, I want to get on with it and start a career. Right. So I was never judged uh, at Vector for not having a degree. I mean, even when I was being looked at or considered for division manager, it was based on my results and what I was doing, and I was doing enough to get considered for other great things. Again, they knew I was reading books and and continuing to move myself forward, but I'm just always grateful. And it's very unique to be able to achieve the success that I've had in life without a degree. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for that vector opportunity to be able to do that. Yeah. And so it was Grushkin who you had to convince. He's a legendary figure in vector lore. What was it like working uh, with Joe Grushkin during those days? Joe Grushkin, I'm telling you, around Joe, you were going to have a good time. I mean, you were going to celebrate life and you're going to be able to have an amazing up meeting. That guy could speak, man. He would fire you up. Joe Grushkin is so old school. I still call him a friend today. In fact, I was just in Connecticut. I was like, I should probably call Joe Grushkin. But uh, no, he's, he definitely made a, a massive difference. He used to call me that Trent Booth guy because Joe Cardillo was out. Uh, prom- I got this Trent Booth guy. That's all. If you know Joe Cardillo, this Trent Booth guy, he literally thought my name was this Trent. <laughs> Last name Booth guy. You know, one of those. But <laughs> That is funny. That's cool. So how did this all morph into you working in a national role with Vector back in the States? Uh, I appreciate you asking that. You know, it's interesting because I have some family in the Philadelphia area. So in Montreal in 1998, my my cousin recruits me away. He says, Trent, you know, you shouldn't be working weekends or working hard. I'm like, I am working hard. He's like, you should come do executive search with me and my firm in Philadelphia. And I'll, I'll teach you to be a headhunter. I was like, man, that sounds great. 
I won't have to work with students anymore. And a lot of the things I guess I was convincing myself, oh, I've got this vector train type of background. I'm going to be able to use this and change corporate America. And if it's not like vector out there, I'll make corporate America like vector. I'll bring the best. And I hated it. I made good money, Dan. <laughs> I hated the job, man. I mean, the average executive search consultant lasts for like six months. I did it for like 20 months and I was doing well. I was making six figures. I was you know, have some success with it, but just not enjoying it. In fact, I found myself uh, in cities like San Francisco begging Dan said if I could just come and speak to your key staff meeting because I missed making a difference on a day-to-day basis so much. So much so that when I came back to the business, it was uh, it's funny. I, I was trying to place myself in another company <laughs> as an executive search consultant, and one of the exercises was to write down your dream position description, and I wrote it out. And I looked at it. I'm like, you idiot. That's a division manager. And you missed it. And then I got this email two days later from Dave Durant asking if I would come back to Canada and run an office. Ottawa had opened up. And mm. I'd been uh, remarried in between. So when I left, I met and then married my wife now, Christy. I'm going to be 21 years in, in November. And now I'm trying to explain to her, hey, that company that I used to work for, then I'm going to work really, I'd like to work there again. And she was like, okay. And I didn't want to sell her on it. I wanted her to kick the tires. And, and if she, it's going to be a hard row, you know, coming back. But it was something that I, I was so grateful to be able to come back and experience. And I would say I have a different perspective on the vector opportunity because I'd been out. Okay. Yeah. And appreciate it in ways that I don't think I ever could have. I'm telling you that fall, I reopened in September. And my wife said, I've never seen you more happy. You know, then then starting a business from scratch, zero momentum, and for three months is like you're just made for this. You know, and I was so grateful to be back, and that was Ottawa in, uh, in 2000. That's and then we tore the cover off the ball. 2001, everything hit. We launched 636 souls with sample kits that year, man. 636 at the time was top 20 all career, like not just me, company wide, right? Ever, I mean, ever. It was like three over 300, 323 for the summer. It was just massive. And eye recruiting was brand new at the time. You remember the blue button machine and Fred Glazer was launching this <laughs> new eye recruiting program. And I was easily top three in that. So I was kind of making my, a name for myself. I got promoted to division coordinator and we were really getting things going. And then uh, some things shifted. We made some decisions as a company to uh, make some changes to the approach. In Canada, unfortunately, we lost the mailer, which was a significant portion of recruits and sales every year. Mm-hmm. And uh, Angie found a way to thrive through that, but I was not. I was just not doing well. In fact, not just me, all of my people in the division failed basically in the summer of 2003. And I was fortunate to go through Vector University and uh, Marty Dimitrovich. And in fact, I played poker for the first time hanging out with you one late night in Illinois and uh, <laughs> became a love eventually. But the idea was uh, Working with Vector University meant I got coaching times with Marty and I got eight sessions with Marty just talking about me and raising awareness and thinking through things and struggles and, and successes and strengths, etc. And, and I really got a lot of clarity that fall where I'm like, you know, I probably could rebuild this, but we had a baby and one on the way. And I'm like, I'm not willing to put in that effort to rebuild the division again. I wonder if they fill that national recruiting spot that they advertised at SLC. And I knew I was going to be a long shot for that because they don't bring Canadians in. To import a Canadian is expensive. 
Like mm-hmm. immigration lawyers are involved. It's just the hassle is just usually not worth it. So I threw my hat in the ring, not thinking they would really even seriously consider me. And, and John Kane is uh, my best friend and, and mentor even now. And he went to bat for me. And uh, and basically my, my career at that point was in Al Leonardo's hands. And I, I walked up to him after he said yes. In 2004, moved the family down to New Jersey, uh, right outside Philadelphia, and I looked Albert in the eye and I said, Albert, I want to be the best decision that you made in 2004. I know it was expensive to bring me in, but I want you to know that I'm all in and uh, I'm excited to help people. At that time, we had pockets of success going in recruiting, but nobody was talking about it. And we didn't have you know, online programs like we have right now, like prolific YouTube wasn't a thing in 2003 or four. And to be able to study the programs, the best of the best and report on what the greats were doing and be able to cross pollinate was really successful and really early. Uh, it was nice to get some wins in a sales support role, which was really different than being in the field. But yeah, 2004, man, moved the family down from Ottawa down to Philadelphia area. And you know, keep in mind, that was a bit of a sale too, because nobody grows up in Canada with a pin in the map of New Jersey saying, someday, can't wait to get to New Jersey. You know what I'm saying? But we've, 16 years later, had an amazing run here. It's just a great place to raise a family and you know, be able to hang out with not only the DeLeonardo's, but also the Canes and you know, a lot of other uh, great influences down here. Yeah. And it, this started out with a recruiting focus for you. And over the next few years, I know Vectors Recruiting went gangbusters and we had some of our greatest years of recruiting ever. And the way I understand it is you were sort of, you know, focused on the recruiting stuff most of the day. And then you'd get done with your work and you would talk to some managers and you found a real niche in coaching district managers and began to you know, your role began to morph over toward this sort of leadership development focus, right? You see, I always really loved uh, the, the impact and influencing, making a difference in other people's lives. That's what I love the most about the position. I, again, as a student in high school, I was, I was good at a lot of things. I thought maybe I'll be a lawyer, maybe I'll be a, a teacher, maybe I'll be a, a pastor. And the reality is I got to do all these things as a district manager and vector. Well, now this is a new role where I get to help other people do well in that. So, Marty Dimitrovich with those eight coaching calls that he gave me back in 2003 had then become sick. And so while he was still having some of those classes, the Vector University courses, where people had had an immersive experience, they weren't getting the eight sessions with Marty or anybody for that matter. So while I didn't see myself being a coach or even know what that title was, I knew I had some exercises from Marty and I could talk to them for 45 minutes. And what happened was some of the people I, I, I just started talking to, I kind of got the day work done during the day. And then later, as my work was done, I could start talking to a, a Mike Monroe uh, and a young district manager named Drew Frank. And then things were going well for Drew. His brother Wes was like, hey, can we get some calls? I said, absolutely. And some of the people I coached early or mentored early started having really like outlier type of success. And uh, to the point where in 2012, you know, the, the number of people I was coaching were doing so well, the company asked if I would just become a leadership training and leadership development manager. So I could, that was the job now where I could actually facilitate some, some small group meetings and always been part of uh, the SLC agenda, the design of that agenda and, and the speaker prep. But now it was also like, Hey Trent, let's work one-on-one and build up some, some managers. And uh, what a great turn of events that was in 2012. The company let me write my position description. And part of it was because I was already doing the job. I was doing beyond what they'd asked me to do. And I was, coaching people wasn't part of my position description. In fact, I was real quiet about it at first. I didn't want anybody to know. So I was just having fun impacting people and just serving in a different way. But uh, 
John Kane really fought for it. And then Albert, when he found out, he's like, yeah, let's do this. Not only that, let's, let's formalize this. Let's bring and make it wider. Let's, uh, that first year we had leadership development day. And when I showed my mom the curriculum, basically what we were going to cover, she goes, man, Trent, a lot of people only talk about these type of things when they're in crisis. Most people aren't thinking about their relationships before those relationships are in trouble. Most people aren't thinking about their health until they're sick. And in, in those leadership development days, part of the curriculum was to raise awareness in those areas, not sell them on what John and I thought they should be doing, but to help just ask questions. Hey, what type of things should you be doing to take care of yourself? What kind of things should you be doing to nurture your relationships? And as people dove into that, uh, we had over 110 people that first year and the company invested, I'm going to say about a, a quarter million dollars, you know, all told in budgets, et cetera, to be able to impact their people, to invest into their people. And uh, I've always loved that about Vector, the fact that uh, we don't just say that human resources are our most important resource. They, they back that up. And I'm not aware of many companies that have a leadership development department designed solely to impact and help people grow uh, individually and, and in groups as well. It's just an amazing uh, ride and a privilege that uh, I'm very grateful for. Yeah. And, and you've had a chance to do this in different size of events. So you have, you've had one-on-one coaching, you've had leadership development days with small groups. You've also been able to introduce this to much larger groups through our uh, national SLC event. I, I believe you're doing something for a lot of our new managers here coming up in a couple of weeks. And so you've really had a powerful impact company-wide. I want to get into, Trent, what are a few of the key, the most important leadership philosophies or strategies that you share with other people that, you know, since you've been working on this. And so why don't you start by telling us what comes to mind when I ask about that? Yeah. One of them is, is altruistic leadership and it's the idea of being radically sold out for the success of others. And when I shifted into a, a service, a sales support role, really, it's much more of a service-oriented position. It's you're not in it for the glory. I mean, really, we're actually more about putting other people, the spotlight on, on others. And uh, to, to be radically sold out, to see other people succeed and not need that spotlight or, or the extra accolades or the, the BMWs, it's really all about serving. And that's uh, one of the things I just love about the role. A lot of terms I was learning in the, in the 2010s there about things like emotional intelligence. And I believe that that's one of the things that we do best at Vector in terms of Vector trained is help raise people's awareness. And when they're aware of what's going on and their emotions and the emotional state of others, they can make new choices now. And that was something I'd learned very young as a man at, at Vector that uh, now we could actually, now there's, there's a whole science, there's a whole study of emotional intelligence. And even recently, I've just loved, it's morphed into relational wisdom. So it's not enough just to, to know about my own emotional state and how I, I can self-regulate and not just enough to see how other people are doing, but to see how I can have more relational wisdom and make just better choices in my relationships and friendships with others. That is a skill, man, that is, of course, applicable at Vector, whether you're a young leader running a team, but that impacts your home life. In, in many cases, these Vector people become better sons, daughters, they become better community leaders, you know, volunteers, etc. Once they raise their EQ, and this is a skill that, that Vector provides this amazing platform, really a laboratory for them to uh, experiment and to, and to play with. A lot of the things that I started teaching, I just, I asked myself, what were lessons that I've learned over the years that I wish I'd learned at 21 or 22? Like, what do I wish somebody had asked me? 
And one of the things I just wish at 21 is somebody would have said, hey, Trent, it's okay to take care of yourself. It's okay to have a hobby. It's okay to play hockey. You should probably actually go out and learn as a Canadian to play hockey at some point. I, I didn't play as a kid. I, I actually started as a 38-year-old man. But uh, even things like, Trent, it's okay to focus on nutrition. I would uh, go into the gold and I would just not eat in front of my reps. I don't know why, but it's, I would just work so hard on day two of training. It's an eight-hour seminar where I wouldn't eat all day. And again, there's no good reason for that. But getting a chance to talk with managers now about, hey, why don't we, why don't we have a smoothie? <laughs> Start off the day. Why don't, we, why don't we eat an apple during the seminar and keep your energy up as opposed to just wondering why you're bonking and angry or maybe a short uh, fuse as we get later into the day. Talking with Drew, one of the, the big lessons early was uh, a lot of managers, we didn't take care of ourselves so much in the summer. When the summer hit, it's time to go. It's harvest time. And Drew would say I'd hit, he'd hit the wall in June. I said, well, what's different in June than what was happening in April? He goes, well, in April, I'm eating better and I'm working out. I said, well, why don't we try that in the summer? He says, well, no, once I hit a million in the summer, then I'll start taking care of myself. I said, what if it's not like that? What if we have to take care of ourselves first, Mm -hmm. get the good nutrition in, start running now so that you can hit the million? In order to hit the million. You got it. I mean, and when he flipped the switch, let's say he doesn't hit the wall. We all hit the wall at some point. He's playing hard breaking records but he was able to push that wall back to like august as opposed to like june you know when he could be more effective and actually be able to leverage back and and take some rest so i think that concept of leverage of going heavy into a vacation all family time no work that's appropriate and it's also appropriate for us to leverage hard during the sc2 push into mostly work and very little family time as long as we know we've got some leverage points coming back to kind of make ourselves whole but just getting young leaders especially, permission to think through what does that look like? And again, by helping them define their core values, they can more closely align their actions with what they believe to be true and, and, and be important. You know, one of the things we talk about a lot on these leadership days is acting your way into feeling. Again, this whole emotional intelligence game, that's a that's a tricky game, man. We are, we are emotional beings. And the importance of not only becoming aware of what you're feeling, but also the fact that sometimes what I'm feeling isn't true. <laughs> so there's been times where, you know, again, speaking back to Jim Rohn, he would say when you journal and you put into linear terms what you're experiencing, what you're feeling right now, you might look at it and reread it and go, huh, it's true that I'm feeling this, but it's not true. <laughs> what I'm feeling in this moment is true. So we'll say right. things like, hey, you, my feelings lie to me all the time. My feelings lie to me when that Medulla oblongata goes, you need to rage right now. The fight or flight instinct when I get that text message and I want to rage and send off a fiery, angry response. And my gut says, this is the most important thing you need to do right now. Actually, the most important thing I need to do right now is walk away from my phone. I need to give this 24 hours. I know for sure if I act on that impulse that it's not in alignment with the best version of me. And while it might feel right in the moment, it's actually going to be devastating for this relationship. So we'll talk about things like, hey, you are not your feelings. <laughs> but we'll take it further. We'll say you are not your results. And so many of us, uh, uh, my emotional state was directly tied to the sales report. I'd come home from the office on a Monday and my wife would be like, how's the day? And she could tell. If sales were up, I was in a good mood. If sales were down, I wasn't in a good mood. The challenge with that is if you're just going to act like the sum total of your results all the time, it's going to be hard to get yourself out of that loop if you're in a bad spot emotionally and or bad spot with with sales so one of the things we'll talk about is it's permission to fail go for it it's okay to play hurt act your way into feeling 
and go for it. Be creative. Failure isn't, isn't final. Failure's okay, but just keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about things like permissible versus beneficial. Is it permissible for me to fire off of that angry text? It might be permissible, especially if it's an incendiary message they sent me first, but is it beneficial? And helping people ask the question in the moment, like it's almost like that commercial, you're not you when you're hungry, right? <laughs> or need a minute. It's like pausing to think through is what I'm about to do, is this simply permissible or am I going for the real version of like who I, the best version of me, is it beneficial? And when we ask those questions, when we're aware, we've got a shot. Once we're aware, we've got a shot of aligning our actions with our core values. And when we do that, success really starts to hit a different trajectory altogether. You know, one of the reasons I'm still here, Dad, 27 years later, is I love the man I'm becoming. I love the lessons that I'm learning about life. And I've said to people, hey, at some point, if I stop learning, maybe I'll, I'll consider a different company or a different position. But the reality is I just still love the son I'm becoming, the husband I'm becoming, the dad I'm becoming because of the things we get to talk about every single day at Vector Marketing and the leadership department. That's so powerful what you just said right there, especially at the end of that, Trent, where you talked about loving the person you're becoming. And I I would flip that back around to say the person that you have helped others to become is part of the reason why our company has thrived. It's part of the reason why so many people have stayed here for so long, because they felt that feeling of growing as people, not just growing as sales managers or sales reps within the context of this company, but that we truly take the gymnonism of help people with their lives, not just their jobs to heart. And you've been a, you know, a, the tip of the spear for that for many years. And it's such a compelling reason why so many people stick around is they get that support outside of the business to grow as humans because we're all working so that we can live a great life, right? We're not living to achieve sales goals in Vector, right? That's part of what we're, you know, what want to accomplish, but we're doing that so that we can, you know, have great lives and have great relationships. And so that element of what you do is such a key part that I feel like people get so much from. I appreciate you saying that, Dan. You know, I, I remember working so hard to achieve uh, a sales level one year and it was, uh, is it uh, excellence? It was the sword basically, right? So once I hit the sword, the level, I was like, man, that's going to be the thing. I can't wait to get that sword and they're going to show a slideshow about me and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be me, me, me. I won it. And the most impactful part of the ceremony was actually the pictures. It wasn't the trophy. It wasn't the sword. It was the people. It was Guilen, it was Kyle, it was Diego, it was Kenny Craig, it was the people and the difference that I, I knew I was making in their lives, but also the difference that they're making in my life as a result of it as well. And you know, one of the things I love about your your, your podcast here, Dan, is it just shows a, a spotlight on the great work that's done here. We are truly changing lives, selling knives. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, that a life invested here is a life not wasted. Whether you are here for a week, whether you are here for a month or for 27 years or a lifetime, I believe anybody listening to this can attest to the fact that, hey, time invested at Vector is a time where you're going to grow, you're going to move forward, you're going to get unstuck. And even if we're a launching pad into your other career, we need more people. I believe at some point when they cure cancer, it'll come out. It's a Vector person. Of course it is. It'll be a Vector-trained person that's out there changing the world. The world needs more Vector-trained teachers. The world needs more Vector-trained coaches. The world needs more Vector-trained 
moms, you know, at the end of the day, I know we're doing a great thing for people. And I believe it's not hyperbole when I say that vector is changing the world. Indeed, that is uh, as true as can be. And we're something that we're very proud of. As you were sharing your leadership philosophies, one of the things that stood out to me was the idea of awareness. That one came up in a lot of the different things that you were talking about. You talked about permissible versus beneficial, right? Is something permissible? Well, yeah, but is it going to help? Well, part of how you figure that out is you catch yourself in the moment and you think about it, right? right? You talked about relational wisdom, acting your way into feeling, right? In order to act your way into feeling, you have to realize, hey, I'm not feeling right right now, but I'm not going to accept that this feeling is my truth. I'm going to change my, my state through my actions, through what I do. All of this stuff, right? You talked about making better choices or new choices. All of this stuff comes down to developing that ability to have awareness in the moment, right? How does one do that, Trent? How does one learn in the moment to be able to sort of, it's almost like you elevate out of your own body and you're looking down, seeing what's going on and you realize like, this is going off the rails here. I need to get my act together right now. Right? How do you coach people to be able to do that effectively? Isn't it funny? One of the axioms in, in Vector that I grew up with is it's not just working hard, it's working hard and smart. Well, the question is, how do you know if you're working hard or working smart? And the only way you can tell is if you pause and take a look around. So one of the exercises that we'll do is we'll have people, uh, we call it micro journaling. And three times a day, they have an alarm go off. And the simple question on the phone is, what's my current state? It's a pause. And it's tricky because I think I'm a pretty positive guy. When I did this for the first time, I couldn't believe I was north of 50% negative when that alarm went off. And it might be as simple as it's nine in the morning. The alarm goes off. What's my state? I'm like, I'm I'm frustrated. I'm like, frustrated? That's crazy. What happened? Why? So the first question we'll usually ask is, well, why? Well, some guy cut me off and it was still bothering me. I'm like, well, that's dumb. And I could then pivot into just a new emotional state. I chose in that moment, joy or happiness. There's other times where I'm dealing with something a little more intense. Like, how am I feeling? And if a family member's just passed away or something, it's appropriate that I'm not feeling great. But it's also appropriate for me to then be a little more intentional about my choices that day. So I might tell my kids, hey, kids, dad's dealing with something right now. It's probably not a good day to ask for that new piece of equipment for Jake for hockey or, you know, just give them some wide berth. In other words, I'm communicating kind of where I'm at and helping other people then self-regulate or regulate around me as well. Mm-hmm. But the key is that that micro-journaling is that alarm going off. What starts to happen is people start to catch themselves in their emotional state as they leave that. So it's like any other muscle we can build up. If the alarm is going off and I'm saying, what is my state? We've at least got a chance to self-regulate, to pivot into another emotional state. Let me also share this. Sometimes that alarm goes off and you, you're having an amazing day. Well, how many great days do we miss because we're not just paying attention even? So for us to pause, here's what happens. When somebody pauses and goes, how am I doing? I'm like, I'm so inspired by my work right now. For me to pause and become consciously aware of that is so powerful. It actually brightens that moment even more. So people's satisfaction goes up, less career-ending injuries or stupid decisions, like angry texts or emails. If I could just pause myself with the, the alarms, that's one set. But another way is then to, before training or before an interview, to just catch self and go, How am I feeling right now? And what emotional state do I want to be in? And start to take some, I think, control over what my emotional state is. And folks, this is a, it's a long time work, man. This is not just a short term one because just because you know this one doesn't mean you got it. This is something that will, I'll need to continue to practice 
really the rest of my days because we are such emotional human beings. What I love is that we get an opportunity to practice this so young. When I don't feel like getting on the phone as a sales rep, I need to figure out quickly that I don't have to feel good to start making calls. (laughs) I just need to start making calls. I can even give myself permission to, to have an aversion to the no, right? It's okay that I have an aversion to that. What's not okay is not making those 20 calls. I got to make those calls so I can get, so I'll start to negotiate to get myself in a new mindset then. Hey, if I make these 20 calls, I have a chance to go to Montreal. So again, I learned that as a 20-year-old kid that I could apply that. I just didn't know it was called emotional intelligence, but we've been learning this for a lifetime now to be able to apply that in just a different way, whether it's an alarm or just to pause and go, how am I doing? What a great practice over a lifetime we can dedicate ourselves to. I love that, Trent. That The idea of the pause several times a day, the alarm that you could have even to be able to trigger that thought in your mind of, hey, what's my state right now and why? Or as you said later, before any key interaction, right? To prepare yourself and just make sure that mentally and emotionally, you're in the right place to be able to have that interaction. That's such an important part of succeeding at the day-to-day elements of life. And it's just, it's a critical idea that people can take to heart to understand what is my state and why. As you said, there are times where maybe when you ask yourself that why, you're going to come up with a pretty legitimate reason why you should be negative for a little while, right? (laughs) The the death of a loved one, for example, is a tragedy most of us have experienced probably a few times over. That is, that's not something that the five minute rule applies to. You don't get over that in five minutes. (laughs) You got it. That being said, virtually everything else is something that you can get over very quickly, if not in five minutes. Virtually everything else is something you can get over quickly. And when you ask yourself, why, why am I putting myself in this position? Why am I leaving myself in this state where I'm mentally, you know, unbalanced right now? You start to think about it like, it's silly. It's silly (laughs) that I'm letting this little thing that happened affect me for three hours. It's like, let me get over it now. And that awareness enables you to just say, look, I'm going to put myself in a better state. Let me do something that's going to move me in a good direction. I mean, full disclosure, I teach this stuff all the time, Dan, and I still struggle with it. I mean, so here's the point. There's certain times where I'm like, I'm upset at myself at the fact I can't get over this thing. So it usually is, I'll I'll have a fight with my wife and I'll be like, this is trivial and stupid. You need to get over it. I'm like, I can't. (laughs) So in that moment, it's okay that I'm feeling that way. What's not okay is for me to act that way. And there's a difference. Yes. Again, this is something great to teach the the kids. It's okay to be angry, son. It's not okay to act angry. It's Mm. okay to be angry right now. It's not okay to hit your sister ever. So for him to be able to regulate in his own time and space, or for me to be able to regulate my own time and space, it's okay. I'm frustrated right now. I can't act frustrated. I can't be short with my wife right now. I need to actually act against what my gut is telling me. That's If we're going to achieve anything in life, long-term legacy achievers, they can't just be following the appetite. They can't just be following what feels good right now. We've got to act our way into feeling. I'm just describing discipline which I believe we've celebrated and learned for years here at Vector. This is just another, another way of describing it. Yeah, so powerful. J- just one of the, those last things you said right there, that it's okay to be angry, but not to act angry. Like that's a powerful lesson starting with little kids, right? Like I'm yeah. thinking about my three-year-old. Yeah. I can teach that lesson to my three-year-old today or the next time I see him, you know, act out against his right. sister or somebody, 
right? That, hey, it's okay to feel angry, to be angry, but let's not act on that, right? Let's act this way instead. And the earlier in life we can start ingraining that concept into people, the more they develop that ability to have self-awareness, to catch themselves in those moments and regulate their behaviors. And that's how we, you know, head down that path towards being, you know, masters of our own emotions. So you got it. So good. A young manager, it's okay to not be fired up about your team right now. It's not okay to act like that, though. It's not okay to to not give them your best just because you're not feeling good right now. We call this playing hurt. It's okay to be hurt, but you've got to play anyway, though. You don't have to feel like running this training seminar right now, but they deserve your best. So I'm going to go give them my best. Now, hear me right. It's better if I'm actually heart and soul into it. But it's also, there's something that's noble about working through it anyway, even if I'm not feeling great. So teaching people how to act their way into feeling, what a beautiful thing to be able to learn and and practice daily here at Factor. Mm. So awesome. So awesome. Thank you for that, Trent. That was great. Well, Trent, uh, this has been really, really powerful, very, very valuable. As you look ahead in your life, Trent, down the road, how do you aspire to continue to change people's lives through the things that you do? You know, a couple thoughts there. One is, uh, I believe that uh, the coaching leader model is probably the the way that most companies need to go these days. And I think down the road, I just don't know other ways to to build champions other than that one-on-one time. I would even say this with my kids. It's not, the dinner table conversation is important, as is also the daddy-daughter dates as is the tournament time with my, with my son as we travel and, and the one-on-one dates with my wife. Those, those little one-on-one interactions are so essential. So I'm hoping at some point down the road that we as a company have not just Trent and a few people coaching, but we have an entire team of coaches, like an entire bank of coaches to one-on-one help raise awareness for the individual managers. Boy, what, a, what an exciting future I think that we could have in that type of a world where we're envisioning young leaders how to be able to uh, become more aware and then they're teaching other people to do the same. But Again, some of that can be held with small group facilitation, and I'm excited about continuing to do that, especially with some of the work with appreciative inquiry and with exchange. That's something I've been certified to do as well. In other words, it's less, I thought at this stage of my career, I might be speaking a lot more. I thought I'd be doing more keynotes, et cetera. And the reality is, I don't know that I can get lasting change that way. I know that when we have guided facilitation and one-on-one coaching, that real change can happen in those types of scenarios. And that's what really gets me excited about the future because at Vector, we're already doing it. It's just on a small scale. And I can't wait to scale that up and, and see that bigger. Yeah. And I'll tell you, if anybody listening is a division manager working on their game in this area and the ability to one-on-one coach their people in the ability to facilitate, you know, small groups with your, you know, your few district managers you have in your team, facilitate events that really drive changes, changes in mentality, changes in behaviors, which lead to change in results. That's what makes somebody an amazing division manager. And, um, you know, certainly one of those things that can be learned from what you're doing that can help so many other people uh, all throughout the company. So you had that lady that gave you the Jim Rohn ticket, right? All those years ago and you couldn't pay for it. And she said, we'll pay it forward. Right. And that's what you're doing, Trent. That's what you're doing to this day. And it's what you're going to continue to do. And it's awesome to, to have a seat to see that. I appreciate that, Dan. It's a great privilege to be able to invest in people this way. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time on the podcast today, Trent. Thanks for having me. All right. Trent Booth, everybody. I know if you are a current Cutco Vector person, you're probably thinking it's about time 
that uh, we had that guy on the podcast. It, indeed, it was about time to have Trent. Really excited to see some things that Trent is going to be working on upcoming here, which I'll tell you about briefly. I loved hearing the impact of Joe Cardillo on Trent's career and just getting around somebody who could be that signature mentor, example, role model for you in life and just considering who that might be for you right now in your life. A Jim Rohn seminar is what really flipped the switch for Trent. A lot of times it's an event like that where we're forced to put ourselves in a position to think and to learn and to grow uh, that really does flip the switch. And I would encourage you to make sure that you are actively learning at all times to keep yourself in positions where you can have those sort of days of awakening that will come your way. In terms of designing his leadership development programs, Trent asked himself, what did I wish I knew at age 21? And certainly one of the things is that we are not our feelings, that we are not like Pavlov's dog that is conditioned to behave in certain ways under certain circumstances, but that instead we have a tremendous power to choose how we feel and what we're going to do in the moment. And the more you can learn to exercise that power, the more you are putting yourself on a path towards success and towards having all the things you want, having the kind of life that you want, you know, on a day to day and week to week basis. Before any key interactions, take control of your state. That was a very valuable lesson that I want to underscore to make sure that each of you is, is considering that. You can consider using Trent's idea of the alarm three times a day to pause and reflect and do some micro journaling. How am I feeling and why? What's my state? Why am I feeling this way? It helps you learn about yourself and helps you learn to take control. And that way, when you have those key moments in time, you are doing it in a peak state and you're far more likely to have successful interactions, successful conversations and build better relationships. Hey, for Vector Managers, Trent Booth is going to be running a masterclass series spinning out of our SLC event coming up here in a few weeks at the end of September and early October. And he's going to be running this masterclass series on a weekly basis with some of the top names in Vector and Cutco to help each of you learn and grow with your management and leadership skills. Of course, Trent also works with managers one-on-one -on -one throughout the company and in small groups. He does great work and has been an instrumental part of our company's success. Hope you enjoyed getting to know Trent's story and hearing some of his leadership philosophies and lessons. And I hope this helps you to find and develop leader within yourself and to become the kind of impactful individual that you can to help change other people's lives. That is our mantra, our destiny here in Vector Marketing and Cutco, and hope that that is something that all of you can embrace and manifest. Thanks for your time today. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.